Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Final Word on Met Radio 1280 AM in Toronto. It's October 20th. I'm your host, Gabriela Silvaponte. Today, we'll be covering stories from police gearing up for Queen's homecoming to an imaginative film to the Migrant Rights Network's online panel. But first, let's take a look at today's top news. Trigger warning, this episode contains mentions of sexual assault, death, and intergenerational trauma. A new Ontario bill may prohibit registered sex offenders from changing their names. If passed, people on the Ontario Sex Offender Registry would be unable to legally change their name. This would include anyone convicted of child pornography, sexual assault, and sexual exploitation. Progressive Conservatives Lori Scott and Laura Smith put the legislation forth this week. Similar laws are already enacted in Saskatchewan and Alberta. The Ontario bill has received large support in the legislature, CBC News reports. This bill, if passed, will stop the Carla Homolkas from becoming the Leanne Teals, Smith said. Carla Homolka is w- well known for her role in the killing of two Ontario schoolgirls alongside Paul Bernardo. She served 12 years in jail and has since changed her name to Leanne Teal. We just feel that the right to change somebody's name should not be abused. We want to strengthen our province's commitment to zero tolerance to these offenders and their heinous crimes and put our full support behind the victims and the families. We have to close up this loophole, Smith added. Scott said that while police are aware when registered sex offenders change their names, the general Canadian population is not. CBC reports the bill was first introduced in 2020 by former progressive conservative Christina Midas. The bill did not get passed before the election, for which Midas did not run. Hence, Scott and Smith have continued the legacy. Although name changes in the province are published in a legislative document called the Ontario Gazette, at the time of the bill's creation, Midas said few read it. As things stand, there remains the opportunity for sex offenders to distance themselves from their heinous crimes, to distance themselves from consequences, and to distance themselves from the repercussions of their victims, she said. The third reading of the Parents' Bill of Rights, or Bill 137, took place Friday morning. The Saskatchewan bill would requisite parental consent if someone under 16 years old wished to be referred to by a different pronoun or name at school. The bill is expected to pass despite its controversiality, after which point royal assent will be the only thing left to do, CTV News reports. The legislation uses the notwithstanding clause to overrule parts of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and Saskatchewan's Human Rights Code. The first two readings saw complete support from all Saskatchewan Party members and the one Saskatchewan United Party member, but it saw complete refusal from the Saskatchewan NDP members. The province's education minister, Jeremy Cockrell, said he anticipates that all 27 school divisions will abide by the legislation if it becomes law. Although amendments to the bill were proposed by the NDP, they were voted down Thursday by the Saskatchewan party. Amendments included the Do Not Harm Amendment, which would mean parental consent is not required when a mental health professional determines there is no safe way to disclose the pronoun or name changes. The other amendment would have required the government to consult with parents more broadly, CTV reports. 
A Kenyan stampede has killed four and left 100 others injured. The stampede took place during celebrations to mark an annual public holiday, CTV reports. Police said it all started because people weren't able to get inside Kericho Stadium in western Kenya at dawn. This was where this year's Mashuja Day, or Heroes' Day, was being celebrated. Kenyan President William Ruto has not yet made any remarks. Police are gearing up for the Queen's University homecoming game this weekend, but students aren't happy about it. They are speaking out against the steep fines and court summonses police introduced to the streets temporarily. Acting Deputy Chief Matt Funnell said the police said they do not regret doing so, CTV reports. Queen's homecoming is known for being hectic between street and house parties. Hence, during large celebrations, Kingston enacts the University District Safety Initiative. During this time, anyone who commits an offense could be issued an increased fine, referred to as the Administrative Monetary Penalty. Those who violate Ontario's Liquor Act can also be summoned to court to appear in front of a Justice of the Peace, CTV reports. Alma Mater Society representatives spoke to the Kingston Police Services Board on Thursday about their concerns. They described the restrictions as quote-unquote unwarranted. The team's Commissioner of External Affairs, Julian Mallet-Hill, said the restrictions were first implemented during move-in weekend, but have remained throughout the semester, CTV reports. Students are citizens too, and this policy has been quite affecting to some people, especially economically disadvantaged people, because the fines can be issued in court or can be substantially higher, Mallet-Hill said. The community has demanded that we do our best as police, as a police agency to control the behavior, Funnel said. The enforcement is firm, it's fair, and it's strict, he added. The goal is to ensure that people charged with an offense account for their actions in person, the city writes in its website. But Mallet Hill said court dates for some students fall during the winter break and prevent them from traveling home for the holidays, CTV reports. This enforcement strategy does not keep our community safe, but is targeting students unjustly and is creating an environment of fear and distrust of law enforcement, Alma Mater Society's statement reads. Police and bylaws said they handed out more than 400 charges and issued $40,900 in fines during move-in weekend, CTV reports. Hosting nuanced parties during homecoming can be a fine of $2,000, and those failing to leave the premises when ordered to or blocking roads could receive a $500 ticket. Meanwhile, Toronto Metropolitan University alumna Dr. Jules Kustachin's film, Wapake, is showing at the Imaginative Film Festival this Sunday, October 22nd. She discussed what the film is about. So when I was at UBC as uh, finishing up my PhD, I was going to put a collection together and I put out a call for abstracts and I got a lot of I got a lot of submissions, and then when it came time to, like, you know, submit chapters, I was actually quite surprised that I didn't get very much. And then I realized that um, maybe people were not ready to tell their stories, because my call for abstracts was um, I wanted 
people to submit uh, how the residential school has impacted their areas of uh, study or their, you know, career choices and so forth. Um, but I wanted, like, uh, children of survivors to submit. And, um, yeah, so I was quite surprised. But, you know, I felt that maybe it wasn't time for people or they didn't feel it was time to share their story yet. And then I brought the idea um, to the National Film Board and uh, they said yes to my idea of putting a story together or a documentary sharing the story of intergenerational trauma and healing. And then, you know, it's been about three years and here we are today screening the film. So, you know, it's great. I feel really good about it. Wapake is a documentary that, um, you know, provides a platform or an opportunity for children of survivors to share their truth. So my mom went to two different residential schools and a day school. She was taken at the age around, I think she was around five or six years old and then returned home at 16. Um, obviously, you know, residential schools were not conducive to learning. Um, there was a lot of abuse and children were taken away from their communities and their homes. Um, a lot of trauma there. Um, so when I talk about intergenerational trauma, I'm talking about the fact that the last residential school, I believe, closed in 1996, so it's still very raw. Um, and the fact that a lot of settler Canadians are not necessarily aware of what happened here in Canada. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up hearing my mother's stories, but, um, you know, nobody was really talking about it within the school system. So there was a lot of silence and shame and, uh, you know, she, she struggled. My mom struggled her whole entire life and, you know, she raised her children. Uh, she did the best that she could as a parent, but you know, that trauma has plagued her whole entire being. Um, so when I talk about intergenerational, I, I often ask that question who I would be without her trauma. Cause it's a heavy weight to carry. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, um, when I talk about healing, I think about my children and how, you know, I've raised them to be strong in their culture, know who they are, but also know that dark history. Um, I feel like I really want to see my children soar, and I believe that they are, um, but they still have that weight of that trauma. The film's name, Wapake, can be translated to tomorrow in English. Kustachin described the significance of this. So Wapake um, means tomorrow. At first I was going to call it futurity, but then I thought, no, I should find a Cree word. So I was thinking long and hard about it. And I was like, okay, what would, you know, what would be the best title for this film? Because I am talking to um, other guests who are outside of my family. Like I spoke to my mom, to my son, and then I have my friend Maisie, who's um, a therapist, and Joseph Dandaran, who's an amazing writer. Anyway, so I was just like, okay, so what would be a word that encapsulates, what would be a word that actually speaks to what we've experienced? And I thought Wapake would be appropriate because, you know, it means hope. It means striving for something bigger than yourself. It means that we're, you know, we have goals and we are going to soar and, you know, tomorrow's a new day. So I felt like that was an appropriate word. Kustachin shared when the film will be showing and where. Yeah, so Wapake had its world premiere at ZIF in Vancouver. So now we're here in Toronto and uh, Wapake will be screening 
at TIFF Lightbox on Sunday, October 22nd at 1.30. Uh, you can buy your tickets at the Imaginative website. And yeah, we're hoping to fill the theater and um, it's really excited for people to see the film. I know it's going to be a heavy film, but I feel like it's an appropriate one and one that will kind of spark really necessary discussion. Uh, Imaginative is an Indigenous film festival. It's been around a very long time, so it's like, you know, where Indigenous people from all over Turtle Island and beyond actually come and gather and share their stories, you know, because representation matters and it's just a showcase of Indigenous talent. She also described what creating the film was like. Um, so Wapake, like I said, it took about three years, I think, because, you know, when you go to the National Film Board, you are paired up with a producer, and um, I was lucky enough and happy to work with Terry Snellgrove, who's an amazing ally. Um, so we go through like the investigative stage, like research and development, and then um, we go into production and then post-production. So I don't know, it was just, it was more of a collaboration. We made sure that we had like majority indigenous crew. We had a lot of allies as well in support of the film. Um, had an amazing uh, DP, Mike Berkwin, who's also Indigenous, and our set designer and wardrobe was Yolanda Skelton. So I had like really cool key people um, working on this production. And uh, we had an on-call uh, counselor as well, who specializes in working with residential school survivors and their children. I don't know, I feel like, you know, there was times where it was a bit challenging because some of the subject matter is a bit... Um, difficult but you know when you have a clear intent and your heart your heart is in the right place I feel like um, for me it worked out very well now we're just showing it to the world so you know that can feel a bit vulnerable or, or scary <laughs> and I asked Kustachin about her experience with filmmaking and at Toronto Metropolitan University's documentary media master's program yeah, so I went to TMU. Um, I actually did the 12-week intensive program uh, at TMU back in 2008. And then once that was done, um, I started the master's program, the documentary media master's program, and I was there for two years. So I don't know, I've always loved documentary. I was inspired by Alanisa Bomswin and her work, you know, because she's changed legislation. Like she's used documentary as a tool of empowerment for Indigenous folks. So I don't know, I've always just wanted to delve deep into documentary storytelling, and it's just something that I feel very comfortable with. And when I create my work, I always have an Indigenous audience in mind because I feel like there's enough scholarship, literature, films out there for settler Canadians to engage with that I don't want to spend my time, like, educating people. I just feel like I want to tell stories, you know, and then everybody else can kind of catch up. And, I'm sh and they have, which is great. So I feel like, you know, um, my stories are very much about indigeneity. Yeah, so when I started school, it was called Ryerson University, and there was this huge statue of him on campus, which is really interesting. And then I actually won um, an award of distinction for my master's work, graduate work. And I remember how odd, I got this, like, gold uh, medal, and it had Eckerton's face on it. <laughs> so I thought, this is so ironic as the child of a survivor, because he was the one who wrote the proposal to Indian Affairs about residential schools. So I thought, this is so strange that here I am, an Indigenous student, 
you know, winning this award with his face on it. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was kind of odd. I still have it. Um, but, you know, I was very flattered and um, obviously excited about being recognized for my academic work. But being at TMU, I think, um, you know, I love the documentary media program. I, by that time, I had four kids at home and I was working part time. I just find the master's program very different than an undergrad program. Um, because you're kind of amongst your peers and, you know, everybody's like coming from different walks of life. Uh, everybody's, you know, very passionate about what they're focused on. I don't know. And they're smaller classrooms. So for me, I had the best time. And I think TMU for me is known as, as very practical. So you walk away with practical skills and you actually walk away, um, you know, knowing how to make a film and, you know, I just, I don't know, I just i just had a really amazing time when I was there. Um, I walked away with the skill set and knowledge and understanding of filmmaking. And I know that other universities are more focused on theory, but for me, I wanted to walk away with those skills of actually hands-on learning, um, as well as the theory, obviously. But I don't know, I didn't really have anything, you know, it wasn't, there was nothing really that I can remember that was a challenge. I felt like everybody was really supportive. I know that, in, you know, I, I made a feature film called Remembering In Moen. And in my opening sequence, I have this whole thing about Eckerd and Ryerson. So at that particular time, I'm not sure. People were just starting to talk about it. And that's interesting that now there's a name change. <laughs> Rights Network hosted an online panel discussion this Wednesday from 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. The event focused on the misconceptions surrounding migrants and the housing crisis. Migrant Workers' Alliance for Change Executive Director Siad Hussan described the event. Um, so we brought together uh, experts and organizers from across the uh, country to have a conversation about um, housing and specifically how migrants are being blamed for it uh, and saying migrants are not responsible for the crisis in housing but we need to take action together to win uh, to fix housing and to ensure decent rights for all immigrants according to the media release sent to met radio there have been quote misconceptions and myths regarding the relationship between immigration and the high cost of housing which increases divisiveness and xenophobia as well the Migrant Rights Network states that permanent immigration growth has remained modest and that there is no connection between population growth and housing. The event heard speeches from migrants struggling with housing as well as Leilana Farha, who was a former UN rapporteur on the right to housing, Ricardo Tranjan, who was with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Chiara Padovani, who is with York Southwestern Tenants, Amy Darwish, who is with the Comité d'Action de Parc Extension, Jade Ho, who is with the Vancouver Tenants Union, and Siad Hussan himself with the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change. Hussan described what the alliance was trying to get out of this panel. 
What we're trying to do is to show how people are fighting back against housing unaffordability. So we brought together tenant rights organizers from Montreal, Vancouver, and um, uh, Toronto to show uh, what is the path forward. We also brought in experts on housing uh, who identified what the key, most important issue is, which is profiteering, which is uh, landlords getting away with being able to jack rent and governments allowing it. Uh, so we spend most of the time actually putting forward solutions to the housing crisis that have to do with people taking uh, collective action with their neighbors uh, and to push policymakers to do the right thing. He shared what some of those actual solutions are. So these solutions aren't for migrants, they're for everyone, right? So every one of us who is in a building can create a tenants union. Every one of us who is organizing, um, who you know, who has neighbors can put our people together and start moving on that. People can go to their city councils uh, and the provincial and the federal governments to demand, um, you know, a complete and utter um, cap on raising rent. Uh, and also to ensure that there is more publicly funded public housing that's being created, so housing being built for the public rather than for the purposes of profit, um, as well as uh, ensuring that uh, there is enforcement of existing laws so that when worker, when people are gouged for rent, that they're able to get basic rights. Uh, we're also, of course, calling for to ensure decent housing for migrants who live in some of the worst kind of housing, uh, because what we're facing right now is not that immigrants are responsible for increasing the housing crisis, but they're actually some of the worst affected. You know, over the last few months, we have seen repeatedly uh, media conversations and economists effectively blaming immigrants for housing, which effectively allows those who are truly responsible to get away with it. So we need to reverse the tide and focus on who is responsible. When I went to register for the event, it said that upwards of 700 people had RSVP'd. Hussan described the turnout. So we had about 300 people join in on online on that day as you know there's a lot happening um but we've distributed it to all of the people who had registered and many many of them have since watched it also so you know we expect most of the people who registered so all 700 at least to be able to watch it and then more and as a look forward he told me about some of the upcoming events yeah, we're constantly organizing events and activities, uh, both online and in person. Uh, you know, for example, on Halloween Day, we're organizing an event to talk about the importance of status and migrant justice, and we're inviting people to participate by carving pumpkins or painting them with a message for status for all. And we're calling on migrants to uh, tell their, share their stories with us. So you can just find it at migrantrights.ca slash Halloween. That's our show. You've been listening to The Final Word on Met Radio 1280 AM in Toronto. I'm Gabriela Silva-Ponte. This episode was put together by myself. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week.